Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, always with Michael McKee. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Where do we go from here? That is the real question. Uh, there are certainly a, there is certainly a unanimity of forecasts about uh, some sort of economic slowdown around the world because of Brexit. How much? How bad? How quickly? Uh, depends on, I guess, uh, your economic model. Peter Hooper is uh, one of the people who puts the model together for Deutsche Bank. He is with us here in studio. And Peter, while we wait for the uh, prime minister to tell us something uh, we don't know about how bad their economics are going to be. Maybe you have some news for him. <laughs> well, well, Mike, uh, our models are, to say the least, uh, tarnished uh, these days. Uh, very difficult to... Uh, and, and what we put into them is uh, far more uncertain than it usually is. Uh, we really need we need another three, four months to fig- begin to figure out what's, uh, what's going to happen there. Uh, certainly, yes, as you say, many people uh, looking for a recession in Europe. I don't know. In, in the UK, uh, I don't know that uh, we're, we're necessarily there yet. And uh, Draghi himself told us that uh, expect half percent off of GDP in Europe for over the next several years. Um, that's on the level, I think, not the growth. Um, uh, implications for the U.S., we probably count in, in, in tenth or tenths uh, of a percentage point uh, uh, at, at this point, um, barring a surprising, uh, really negative outcome in Europe. But, um, you know, anything's possible. Um, we're in the process of rethinking our outlook. Uh, Pre-Brexit, uh, we said that if Brexit, uh, we'd probably take a couple tenths off of global growth and uh, uh, something uh, half to three-quarter percentage point off UK. I imagine those numbers will be marked up. But the, the bottom line in here is any number you pick – is going to be revised very soon because this is just an un- uncertain world. But in in any case, no matter what number you pick, we, growth is so slow that um, it's not good. Well, you know, uh, Fed Governor Jay Powell's been doing some very interesting speeches lately. He did another one last night, and he focused on this this very slow growth. Uh, and by, by that, I mean you know, potential growth for the economy. What's happening on the supply side? What's happening to the labor force and, and, and particularly productivity growth? The baseline is growth is much slower today than it was pre, pre-crisis. Um, and, but the implication is that you're getting some pretty good improvement in labor markets. I mean, look across the globe, uh, whether it's U.S., whether it's Japan, whether it's Europe, all we're seeing uh, significant declines in unemployment. Labor markets are tightening. The uh, U.S. is now very close to full employment. Japan, not far away. Uh, Europe has a ways to go, but they've made a fair amount of progress. Uh, this is both because employment has been expanding, but the, the, the bottom line is that uh, the, the available uh, supply of labor has, has been slowing and the productivity of the labor uh, has been slowing. So, you know, 2% growth gives you a lot more improvement in the labor market than it used to. I guess the question is, how do your models account for political upset of the kind that we're seeing? Or, or can you even begin? We, we do know that uncertainty has a significant impact on business spending. Uh, and, and, one of, and probably the biggest reason that we're seeing this very low productivity is that there just hasn't been the the kind of investment in new capital, new uh, equipment, 
um, machinery structures uh, been much weaker than you, you normally see at this point uh, in an economic expansion. Uh, and we've had just a series of shocks all, all along here. Uh, the initial euro crises, uh, fiscal crises in the U.S., uh, China, and now uh, the, the latest developments in Europe, all factors that are keeping businesses on the mm. sideline. Uh, Goldman Sachs just putting out a statement saying it is not uh, moving to Frankfurt immediately. There's been no change in their operations or real estate needs. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of talk about what the banks are going to do. Yeah, and, Francine uh, said it's already, feverish. Uh, already. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, Peter Hooper, one of the things nobody's talking about, and I know Tom brought it up on the, on the show this morning, uh, everybody is, uh, the, the, the Europeans basically held a hammer over David Cameron's head last night and said, you guys, we're going to nail you, whatever. But Germany needs the UK. I mean, nobody is talking about that. It's a huge export market for a country whose economy is built on exports. Uh, no, no question. There will be con there will continue to be important economic ties. Whatever happens this uh, this fall and uh, into the winter, uh, UK is just too important to Europe. It's too important to Germany. Um, uh, I think UK is a major export market for for Germany. Uh, my, my recollection is uh, Germany enjoys a pretty large uh, trade surplus uh, with the UK. Uh, with with exports having grown pretty substantially over time, uh, this 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 slip in the in the pound may help to change things uh, a bit there, but um, uh, no, no question. Uh, uh, I, I also wanted to note that uh, Deutsche Bank already has a very large presence in Frankfurt. Uh, really, really, <laughs> we're shy politically. You say that we say good morning to John Crane, who I'm sure is listening to his chief economist, Michael. There is a headline out which shows how moment-to-moment moment our linkage of Peter Hooper's economics is into politics. Mr. Cameron speaking up in Parliament. Yes, telling Jeremy Corbyn he should <laughs> resign as the Labor Party. It's starting to sound like Hillary Clinton and Donald and Trump. And Donald here. Trump, a uh, little bit. Um, I want to get Peter Hooper back on script here. You were kind enough to mention Jerome Powell, the governor's speech in Chicago yesterday. And it's almost as if ripped from a page of the laureate Ned Phelps speaking eight years ago on dynamism. What is dynamism and do I care? Is it something that's going to help me as an American? Uh, dynamism is uh, an antidote to secular stagnation, if you will, or it's the, the opposite view right now. It's, it's the sense that <clears throat> we have, uh, as time's going by, uh, all kinds of technological developments taking place, uh, whether it's in um, uh, genetic engineering, bio, biotech, uh, robotics, uh, a lot of developments going on here. Uh, the view is that there's, there's huge potential to raise U.S. productivity if businesses would only start to invest in some of these new, uh, new developments. Agreed. It is uncertainty that's holding us back. It's not the lack of new inventions. It's not, I mean, a la uh, Bob Gordon, uh, we don't need to close down the, the patent office uh, because we're, la we're, we're not inventing enough new stuff. Uh, so the dynamism view is uh, there's a lot of potential out there. Uh, the economy will uh, pick up as uncertainty recedes, as firms begin to <clears throat> invest again. Another headline, Michael, just to drop in here to show the frenzy of the morning. Germany said to oppose shielding investors in Italy bank plan. Yeah. A, that presumes that there's a plan. 
Well, there is a plan, and uh, the, what it, it gets complicated, um, but basically the Italians want to be able to put capital into their banks without having any shareholder uh, haircuts in the short Dilution, run, which is yeah. against EU rules. They want a suspension of the rules, and yeah. uh, Frau Merkel is saying no. We can talk about that with Mike Mayo later in the program. Uh, let me quickly ask you, Peter Hooper, uh, the economy will pick up, dynamism will come into play. Will tariffs, will tearing up free trade agreements help that? Uh, obviously, we've taken a step back here in, in the whole globalization, uh, uh, the opening up of the global economy to free trade uh, and, and the benefits of trade. So um, this, this recent development in the UK vis-a-vis -vis EU, uh, not helpful in that, in that regard. I'm not anticipating a sudden surge in, in protect, protectionism, but the recent trends, the politics <clears throat> say it's going to be perhaps a slow yeah, leak. There, there is a, a po political candidate who <clears throat> does anticipate a surge in protectionism. Really? Uh, <clears throat> Peter Hooper, thank you so much for joining us today. You had 18 reasons to stay and brief uh, Deutsche Bank clients. We greatly appreciate your attendance. He is the chief economist of Deutsche Bank. To give perspective, there are those that talk. We've had a little bit of that in the last number of days, including talking their book. In many ways, David Harrow has written the book on European investment. He has been a long-year owner of more conservative European banks and multinationals. Mr. Harrow is with uh, Oak, uh, Harris Associates excuse me, in Chicago. David, good morning. Good morning, Tom. How are you? I think I'm good. Have you been acquiring shares of BMP Paribas, which are modestly on sale, is others crater? Well, let me just say this because I can't talk specifically as to what we're doing. But, you know, our MO is to determine the value of a business and to buy as long as that value is stable and it doesn't match the changes in share prices is to buy on weakness. And what we've really seen in the last two or three days, starting with the Brexit event, was a massive destruction of the price of many of these European financials. And we certainly do not believe that the price destruction was anywhere near the decline in value. So you saw and see a big value gap opening up. These stocks were cheap to begin with on fears of Brexit. And then when the actual event happened, you saw many of these financials down 15, 20, 25 percent in two days. So our MO is to buy low and to sell high. And perhaps because of uh, additional weakness that will exist in the macro environment as a result of the uncertainty surrounding Brexit, you might see lower mm -hmm. profit growth, but it certainly doesn't match the businesses being dropped in price right. by 20 or 30 percent. What is your study of the ability to generate revenues, to move down the income statement and generate free cash flow for these banks if they're living in the land of negative rates? That's original Harrow research, isn't it? Yes, and what you have to do, Tom, is you just can't look at the interest rate spread, which is negatively impacted by the low and negative rates, to be sure. But there are other forms of uh, earnings power from banks, uh, costs, fees, loan growth, 
loan losses, etc. And for the most part, these other forms will be positive. Uh, the loan growth now it might be a little stickier given the uncertainty in the macro environment, but certainly fees have been going up. I mean, you talk to companies who refinance, they say, oh, we refinanced at a lower rate, but we had to pay a huge fee. Uh, well, so fees are going up. Uh, costs are coming down. And loan losses actually have been you know, somewhat aggressively coming down in, in, in the Europe as a result of the periphery healing. So Yes, there's spreads under pressure, but in the meantime, the prices you're being asked to pay in the market for these banks is in many cases somewhere less than three-quarters book value today. Can I for ask entities that should earn a normal ROE in the low double digits, 10, 11, 12 percent. Can I ask, David, just to uh, clarify, you're talking about U.K. banks. I would imagine you'd be more discriminating about the outlook for European banks, given the, some of them are not in as good a shape as others. No, you have to be discriminating against banks in general. And our view is to look for those banks that have a large capital buffer, that have a good capital position. And this is really one of the things the market is missing. The market thinks we're in 09 again, and the knee-jerk reaction of the market is any time there is a disturbance to aggressively sell the banks. However, if you look at capital positions, Eurozone banks in 08, to, uh, tangible equity to assets was around 3 Today, it's over 5%. The core equity tier one ratio, while it's not comparable because it was Basel uh, 1 in, in 2008, but somewhere around 6 or 7%. Today, the Eurozone is 12%. Now, in, and if you look at the quality of that within that Eurozone, these margins of safety are even better. They're even stronger. And so, again, this is what the market is missing, is going into this crisis, the banks, the quality banks, have a much, much, and sometimes as a factor of two, right. stronger capital position. Uh, Michael, I've been remiss today on not mentioning the Wednesday rollover of Deutsche Bank and Unicredit. Mike and I are using those as two proxies for troubled Europe. And, Mike, I really miss we're almost back to June 27 lows on Unicredit. Well, I, I did not know that yeah. until two minutes ago. We'll talk about Bloomberg. this. Uh, John as, Tucker as did not brief on. me on that. <laughs> there is the whole the whole argument and the whole situation with the Italian bank recapitalization. Plan, yeah. But. We, we've been talking, David Harrell, about the uh, banks, the financials in the UK and Europe. There's been a lot written about U.S. companies with exposure to the UK and Europe. Is it too early to worry about them? Well, again, anyone who has exposure to the U.K. in particular, as a result of this uncertainty, at least in the short term, you're going to see some slower growth in the U.K. Whether it falls off a cliff, like I think some of the fear proponents have, have put forth, is another question, especially if whoever the new leadership is in the U.K. promotes a, a strong growth uh, it's kind of a supply-side economic plan in which at some point the U.K., two, three, four years down the road, may be outgrowing as it has the continental Europe and be a good place to invest in. But in the short term, of course, there's uncertainty, and this uncertainty is going to lead to the yeah. lack of business decision-making, which will lead to some slower growth. 
U.S. companies are fairly well diversified. The U.K. economy is, okay, it's at number two or three in Europe, but in the grand scheme of things, the U.S. companies, I I believe, can easily deal with us. Okay, very quickly here, David, that's exactly where we wanted to go. Do I express an international uh, uh, view by buying U.S. multinationals, or do I need to go into the land of David Harrow and buy direct? Well, you do both, and you really have to analyze where a company earns its cash flow, not where the zip code of its corporate headquarters. And this is, I think, a big mistake investors still make. They say, well, how could you be invested in Europe? Mm -hmm. It's low growth. It's blah, blah, blah. Well, of course it is. I don't disagree with any of that. In fact, this is why, perhaps one of the reasons why the U.K. wants to separate itself from it. But but you have to look at these companies, where they earn their money and how they earn their money, mm-hmm. not where they're located. And investors just cannot get right. that out of their mind. And, and David, I think one of the great questions, and, and to get a little geeky here, is when you determine that cash flow is sustained and rising at a company, how do you exactly figure out that it's good cash flow or indeed great cash flow? What's the trick to that? Well, what you have to do is in analyzing the cash flow stream, A, you have to try to get an idea on the pace of growth. But B, you also have to get an idea on the sustainability and whether that cash flow stream could withstand shocks. And so in pricing that cash flow stream and determining what multiples to use, it's really a function of the strength of it, the durability of it, the ability for it to, to withstand shocks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The big mistake investors make is they think, well, just because uh, a company might face a short period of uncertainty or of lower cash flow, they completely uh, impact this on the share price, even though the value of the business is the present value of all cash flow streams, not just the next couple quarters or the couple years, but all the way to perpetuity to today, to present value. And this is why a long-term value investor has opportunity to make money, is because Mr. Market tends to be very short-term, focuses on disturbances, and ignores the fact that intrinsic value is the present value of all cash flow streams, not just a couple quarters. So in analyzing businesses, that's what you have to look at, not just what's going to happen in the short term. Well, uh, when you do that, uh, what are you discounting for uh, inflation these days and for um, interest rates? Well, again, when you're, you, when you're looking at this cash flow stream as something that goes into perpetuity, you can't necessarily just use today's conditions. And this is the tricky part. You have to use what you think the future is going to be like. So even though the interest rates today are low, it is unlikely that they're going to be this low forever. In fact, I would say mm-hmm. extremely improbable. So you have to come up with what is a normal interest rate and a normal inflation rate. By the way, uh, the two are very, they're very much linked at the hip. Inflation expectations go up, so do interest rates. So uh, real interest rates, that is. So um, this is what you have to do as an analyst. You have to look at the business. You have to look at the condition in which it operates. And you have to come with judgments of what is normalcy. And, and, and it's hard and it's inexact. But by doing this exercise, you can come up with some relatively accurate idea on what a business right. is worth. David Harold, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. Michael McKee, 
jump in here with Michael Mayo of CLSA on that GE announcement. Imel, yeah. Imel is not a banker anymore. Is that the headline? <laughs> He's still a banker, but a much smaller banker and a much uh, less important one to the government, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, taking uh, GE Capital Office lists of too big to fail financial institutions. Uh, that designation brings restrictive capital and leverage requirements. They've been working with the FSOC for quite some time, Mike, to get this done. It's really no surprise Jeff Immelt's been selling off parts of GE Capital to try to really slim it down. Well, you know, the bank regulators have, you know, a big stick and they've used that stick a lot. And you'll see that actually in seven hours from now when we get the results of the Fed stress test, one out of seven banks have issues due to qualitative factors. But this is an example of the regulators having a carrot. And I think the regulators need to have more carrots to reward good behavior. And it's nice to see uh, a you know, a company that took action and now they're getting rewarded for that. We would like to see more rewards for good behavior for the banks. But the difference is Jeff Immelt wanted to get out of this business. Jamie Dimon doesn't want to shed businesses, at least as far as we know. Well, it's a matter of degree. So the degree of regulatory burden is a lot greater for the largest banks. And they can reduce that regulatory burden by selling off businesses, by shrinking, by simplifying. And they've done that. I don't always think they've done that quite enough. So Citigroup, they should sell their Mexican bank. Bank America should perhaps, you know, liberate, sell off Merrill Lynch. Comerica Regional Bank should sell off a region. So there's a lot the banks can do to go more in the direction of GE while and still remaining large banks. We've been Europe, 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 Brexit, Brexit, Brexit. Let's, let's do, oh, Michael, here, American banking. Have you been surprised by the lack of mergers and acquisitions given weak nominal GDP, given revenue struggles, given net margin. Are you waking up and saying, where's the M&A? Well, the largest banks, uh, you know, take Citigroup and Jake Morgan Bank they America. They, they can't buy anymore. But you're absolutely right, Tom. For the U.S. banks, it's been the worst revenue growth this decade in 80 years. So wow. if you're not making, really? if you're wow. not making it on the top line, the only way to make it on the bottom line is to become more efficient. And so that's why we really request or almost require the large banks to have a plan B. Hope is not a strategy. You can't wait for higher interest rates forever. So what are you doing to become more efficient? And if you don't have a plan B, one way to get expense savings is to go ahead and merge and create new opportunities. Well, is it regulation, Dodd-Frank, et cetera, that has led them to this terrible earnings decade? Or is it the economy, stupid, to quote an old president? <laughs> is it the chicken or the egg? Uh, I think it's a combination of both. Clearly, uh, the regulators in the United States and globally want the banks to de-risk and de-lever. Well, guess what? If banks are going to de-risk and de-lever, they're not going to grow assets as much. They're not going to make as many loans. They're going to have a lot worse revenue. So clearly that's been a factor. Uh, the flip side of this terrible revenue growth environment for banks is that they're much more resilient. In fact, we think the bank's balance sheets in the United States are the most resilient that they've been in decades. Yeah, the, um, the round one of the stress tests last week was pretty good, considering that the ad, the severely adverse scenario was pretty severe. The stress test for the U.S. banks, when part one came out last week, it was great. I mean, the Fed is assuming a severe global recession with 10% unemployment, negative 6% GDP growth, stock prices declined by half. They even added in negative interest rates uh, this go-around. And even after a terrible scenario like that, 
uh, the result is that the banks would still have about $400 billion of excess capital to absorb even more losses. So the U.S. banks could absorb multiple Brexits and still have strong balance sheets. Earnings issues, yes. Balance sheets, solid. Where are you buy, hold, sell on Bank of America? So Bank of America, we were negative one for many years. Uh, and then earlier this year, we convinced ourselves that their book value continues to grow even in a recession. So that's why we love yeah. part of the Fed stress test, because the Fed stress I mean, test last week validated <clears throat> some of our thoughts. They have almost 50 right. billion of excess capital after a terrible, you know, uh, you know severe right. global recession. But the, the issue remains, Tom, as you know, terrible governance at the top. I can't believe that Bank America okay. gets away with but what they get away with. The, what, I think this is an important point, folks. Each analyst is different. Mike, may I, you and I go back to Credit Suisse a million years ago. You got Betsy um, uh, um, Betsy Kasich over at Morgan Stanley, Susan Roth Kasky. You guys all been doing this for years. Each of you has a different style, but you all come to the conclusion that Bank of America can catch up with the others. How long will that take? Well, my conclusion is not that they catch up with the others. My conclusion is that you know they will do better than they've done. Uh, but what I think they need is more a better tone at the top to have time frames for a key financial target. How do you get away with that? Not having a time frame for a financial target. I mean, Mr. Stumpf has that, is what you would say. Wells Fargo, you know, they've delivered the goods. J.P. Morgan's delivered the goods. But for a bank that's had single-digit ROEs all decade. You need to hold management's feet to the fire. Very quickly, or Macquarie has a wonderful chart. Look, and the ratio of it, folks, on the Y and X axis is basically BAC is a European-like bank. Do you agree with that? That's absolutely wrong. That's ridiculous because Bank America, their liquidity has gone up from $100 billion a decade ago to $400 billion of liquidity. They have record liquidity, okay. record capital. They are a solid balance sheet bank, even if their earnings you okay. know, need to improve some. I want to make this a gossip session. We've got four and a half minutes with you. Tell me how you perceive, Michael Mayo, the future of New York Wall Street. There's a 27-year-old intern out there right now. He's got his MBA. He wants to be Mike Mayo or David Vinnie or, or whoever. Is there a future? Yeah, I still believe in growth in global capitalism. <laughs> I believe that markets are better at allocating capital than governments. Having said that, boy, this Brexit is a big speed bump, and we have a lot of foreign banks that are based here in New York. So the number right. of jobs you're going to be see, you'll see reductions probably later this year. You're going to see compensation go down. You have major headwinds in the financial industry here in New York. So if you're thinking about going into finance, I love it long term, but. Over the next you know, couple of years, it's going to be tough. The FT had an article a year ago in the summer, U.S. banks killing European banks. And it was one of those things where it just got traction. Now with Brexit and all that and the distractions of the EU today, is it going to be ever true that a given American bank is going to take market share in Dublin, in Frankfurt, or in Warsaw? Well, this could be an enormous silver lining for the U.S. banks. So for all the the headwinds and compensation and jobs. In the meantime, we expect U.S. banks to continue to gain market share, especially against the European players. So this could be you know, an epic market share gain grab for the large U.S. banks. So, you know, when you have resumes, if you're working at a, a, a European bank right now, you know, 
update those and send them to J.P. Right. Morgan and Goldman Sachs because they'll want to gain right. share. Michael McKee, Epic is tested in CFA level four. Epic. <laughs> I never quite got that far, I guess, uh, to, to Epic. epic. Uh, it, it's important to note um, in, the, in all this that the Fed has changed the rules for foreign banks operating in the U.S. Uh, come next month or so, they got to have subsidiary walled off subsidiaries and then in 2018 they're subject to some basically the same kind of stress tests as the u.s banks and the fed's going to hold on to their profits if their if their uh, capital's not high enough well you're leveling the playing field I mean, it's the rules that u.s banks uh, face here in our country and it's part of making the overall uh you know banking system safer and you know, last week, part one of the stress tests showed that U.S. banks had $400 billion of excess capital even after a severe global recession. So this is simply, you know, reaffirming that excess capital, not just for the U.S. banks based here, but for the foreign banks that do business here, too. We should ask you two in uh, nine words, in CFA level one half language for, <laughs> to explain the difference between last week's stress test and this week's stress test. So... Stress test part one is where the Federal Reserve ran through their models and said, how much capital do banks have to absorb another Lehman-type scenario? And the conclusion that we calculated from the Fed data is that the banks had $400 billion of extra capital left over even after that. And they do that for the industry. They do that for each bank. And all of the banks passed on a quantitative basis. And today? Tonight, seven hours from now, the banks are told how much of their earnings they're allowed to return to investors through dividends and stock buybacks. But they don't fail. They don't have issues due to quantitative factors, typically. It's due to qualitative factors. And so when I talk about the Fed stress test, I say it's a love-hate relationship. I love how the Federal Reserve can reassure investors and the public that the balance sheets are more resilient than they've been in a couple decades. But I hate the subjectivity that allows the Fed to say banks have issues mm. one out of seven times due to qualitative factors. How much are we talking about in what may go out the door to shareholders if the Fed approves? We're looking at capital increases at U.S. banks to increase by about one-fifth year over year. That is a significant increase. So at a time, you might be talking about European banks. Do they need to raise capital? Do they need to cut dividends? You're not having capital raises at U.S. banks. In fact, seven hours from now, you'll see that banks will be allowed to increase their dividends and increase the amount of stock they buy back. Does anybody, fa I mean, I guess we call it failing, but is anybody going to be prevented from doing that? any of that? The answer is yes. Um, and over the last five years, one third of the banks that have had issues were the large money center banks, one-third were regional banks, and one-third were foreign banks. Um, but it's really right. tough to handicap on the outside. 30 seconds. Do you have a single best buy? You know, we are really focused on the dividend stock. So I'm going to give you two uh, for, uh, for the safer investment. Wells Fargo and J.P. Morgan both have dividend yields over 3%, nice long-term holdings. And those dividends are safe even through a mm -hmm. Lehman-type event, even through right. many Brexits. Michael Mayo, thank you so much for being with us, making world headlines today on the Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Michael McKee is at McConomy. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg.